0: Hey guys, my name is Kerwin Donis. Welcome back to The Real Estate Monopoly. Today's guest is Warren Dresner. Warren has 20 years of experience in finance, insurance, and real estate in the United States, the UK, and Australia with a focus on deal management, deal execution, and project management. He began investing in real estate in 2010 and has experience in both single family and multifamily apartments. He's currently invested in over 2,000 units across the Southeast and the Midwest, Warren, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. To kick things off, I'd love to know, where where have you lived in Europe? I've always wanted to go, so.
1: Well, thanks. Thanks for having me on. So in Europe, I lived in London, um, but at the time, I had a job that was covering Western Europe, so I was regularly traveling anywhere from Spain, Portugal, uh, all the way to Germany, Italy, Austria.
0: And I did venture
1: out more to Eastern Europe on the odd occasion as well.
0: That is awesome. Uh, it was like on my bucket list, London is one of the top places. I'm always telling my brothers I want to go. <laughs> but no, that's awesome. So what brought you to the, to the United States?
1: So I, this is the second time I've lived in the US. I, I did live in Chicago for a couple of years when I was in my 20s. Um, but really what brought me here is I married my wife who's from Mexico. Her family lives in Mexico still. And we were living in Australia at the time and she really wanted to be closer to her family. So we decided to move to this side of the world and the U S was a great compromise.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And in the past, you've mentioned how you kind of had like an aha moment about the importance of passive income. And of course, uh, real estate is a great way to generate passive income. So uh, just to kind of kick things off, I'd love to know what was that experience for you when you noticed passive income is really important and maybe more important in the long run uh, compared to active income?
1: Well, I I feel like I went over my head, I think my dad gave me rich dad, poor dad when I was probably 18, 19 years old, and I read it, but I didn't really get it. Mm -hmm. I, I remember learning that a car is a liability, not an asset. But the whole thing about passive income just didn't click for me. I was kind of brought up to study hard, go to university, get a good job, start earning money. And that's what I did. And I guess it worked well for me. I got promoted over the years. I've done some cool jobs, traveled around the world. But eventually I realized I had a good life, but it was totally dependent on me working and giving up my time, selling my time for money. So I guess the aha moment probably came when I was around 40 um, when I realized everything's going great. But if I want the option of ever quitting my job, I need to develop other sources of income. So it was really about optionality, just creating the option, the freedom to choose. Um, And that's kind of why I started focusing more on passive income.
0: Yeah, and did you immediately transition and kind of pivot to real estate? I know you started investing in Australia, but can you kind of walk us through why you chose real estate?
1: So real estate is just, it's a great source of of passive income. Um, I did start investing in real estate even before that moment I started getting into it for tax reasons it was great depreciation to offset the w2 income I started earning a little bit of passive income at the time but it wasn't enough to live off um, there are there are lots of sources of passive income real estate I just found to be very easy to, mm-hmm. to focus on part-time in the beginning I was busy with my w2 job real estate is an asset that's cash flow producing um, starting an online business could have been another option but to me that just that would have taken time that i just didn't have so real estate was the easy one for me just because of that time equation
0: yeah and, and you've mentioned that that you transitioned transitioned and chose to start investing in america the us um, after maybe things didn't go as, as you might have wanted to uh, them to go in australia can you kind of walk us through what your experience was investing in australia and why the us was more ideal for you mm-hmm.
1: US is an amazing place to invest. Um, so it's not that they didn't go as planned in Australia. It's just that the market is not as great for an investor. Australia is very expensive. Well, firstly, let me take a step back. Australia is a big country geographically, mm. but a very small population. It just means it's difficult from a business point of view because you don't have a lot of customers. Um, most people live in a couple of cities on the coast. And real estate in those markets is really expensive. It's kind of like buying real estate in California or New York. It's you can make money, but don't expect any cash flow. So I had a number of investments, single family homes, but they weren't cash flowing. Um, Over time, prices went up. So I had a lot of equity in those properties over time. Mm. But return on that equity was very, very low and cash flow was minimal. Um when I got to the US I realized you can cash flow you can actually buy properties that are producing 10% or more cash flow and I realized that the equity I had sitting in Australia was like dead equity I was much better off selling those assets bringing the equity over here and investing it in US real estate Yeah what I loved about the US market when I first got here it was such a big country you can invest in all sorts of places you don't need to be investing in New York or LA. There's the whole of Middle America, and it's actually much more accessible, much more affordable. Um, so I was really excited to get into the to learn about and get into the U.S. market.
0: Yeah, and so I know there's this foreign exchange uh, of like your currency when you come from another country. How, how did that impact you at all as you made that transition um, in, in terms of like exchanging or moving your assets to here to here?
1: Uh, a little bit. So it's really difficult to. <laughs> startup in a new country yeah. there's a lot of a lot of frictional costs a lot of wasted money so you know you could look on the news and see that the exchange rate's 75 cents but when you actually exchange some money they're ripping you off somewhere someone's taking a cut so you end up losing a lot of money on the transactional hmm. side yeah. um, the banking environment's very different in the U.S. just setting up banking earning credit in the U.S. all of that was problematic and challenging um, so it just meant that things took a little bit longer than I had hoped
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I know I also came from a single family background. My brothers and I, we were wholesaling. We did a flip and had two rentals. Um, So we eventually did make that transition and leap into the multifamily space. But did you start with single family in the US or did you automatically know you wanted to do multifamily by the time you decided to invest here?
1: So neither of those. I actually, (laughs) the intention of doing single family in the US, I had done single family in Australia. I knew that it required a bit of work. It's quite—it's active. You've got to manage it. Even if you hire a property manager, it takes up time and effort. I came with the intention of investing in single family in the US. What I found, the more research I did, the more I realized I wasn't familiar enough with many of the markets. Um, I would have had to travel to... I live in Miami, Florida. Mm -hmm. It makes sense to invest in Miami. But if I was going to invest in Louisiana or Arkansas, I needed to invest a lot of time and energy in getting to know those markets. So although on paper, the numbers made sense to invest in certain cities, I didn't feel like I had enough knowledge um, to just jump in. What I also found as I did more and more research, I discovered bigger pockets and was listening to every podcast out there and reading every book. And I soon discovered multifamily. And the more I learned about multifamily, the more I came to the conclusion that I didn't have to go the single family route, I could jump straight into multifamily.
0: Yeah, and you started out passive investing, is that right? Exactly. Yeah. So
1: I, I mean, I was looking at the returns I was getting in Australia, I was looking at the potential returns for single family in the US. And then I looked at passive returns that I could get from passively investing in multifamily syndications. And this was 2018, 2019. And the returns were amazing, like it, there was no need to put all that effort in and trying to manage your own single family house when I could invest with a seasoned operator in a great looking asset with a great business plan and a great market and earn really good returns. So that's what I started doing. I started investing passively in a number of syndications.
0: Yeah. And for anyone, we always talk about multifamily on the podcast, but for anyone that isn't maybe aware, uh, can you explain what multifamily syndication is uh, from the perspective of a passive investor?
1: Sure. So these these assets tend to be larger deals. So it, it might be a complex, an apartment community with 100 units or more. The operator wants to buy it um, and it might cost $20 million. But what the operator does is they raise the equity from individual investors like me and offer them a a share of the investment and then some sort of return. The operator does all the work. They hire the property manager, they do all the asset management, they acquire the property, they manage the whole process and the passive investor investor really is just investing their money um, and letting the operator use that money and earn a return for them.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I know you did eventually make that leap into onto the active side. I'd love to know what was that always your your goal or did you realize uh, like you wanted more 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 piece of the pie or what was your motive behind that?
1: Yeah, it wasn't always my goal. Um, I think I realized I loved investing passively. I loved seeing the returns that were coming in. I was doing the math one time and and realized, "Hey, if I keep investing like this, this is going to look good and Maybe when I'm 65, I'll be ready to retire. And the more I thought about it, I thought, why do I need to wait until I'm 65 to have enough money for, to retire? Maybe I can fast track that process. I I did and I do love the industry. I think it's such a great industry because it's good for, so, for everyone involved. I mean, it's great for the investors. It's great for the residents that live in these communities. We're improving communities, making livelihood much better for people a lot of people. Um, and it's great for the operators as well if, if they're doing a good job. So it's, it's a great industry. I, I really enjoy it. And so I decided to start to get more active because I enjoy doing it. I thought it would be fun. But I also wanted to just fast track that optionality that I talked about earlier. If I could get involved in a couple of deals actively, I'd have options. I can keep working in my job. I could quit my job if I wanted to. But it just seemed like it would be something fun uh for me to do
0: no I, i'm really happy you mentioned that because that's so true I, I think a lot of times people think about what's in it for them but it does impact a lot of people in in a good way if you do it the right way absolutely um, so that's awesome and so i know you know you have i wouldn't say any unique investment criteria but it's different from a lot of other investors as syndicators particularly and we'll get into that but i wanted to know i know it took you multiple months i believe it was over eight months to find your first deal as an active investor I would love to know just briefly, what, what was that process like, you know, underwriting deals, staying persistent, um, and, and really going through the the trials of, of underwriting consistently without really reaping any benefits or seeing any results immediately? Uh,
1: I don't know if I expected results immediately. I mean, I, I came into the active side learning to underwrite, building my network, both in terms of the team that's needed to take down these deals, but also just getting to know brokers, property managers. In the beginning, I felt like there was so much to learn. I don't think I was expecting any results in the short term. I definitely didn't set a deadline that I want to buy my first property by this date. So looking back, I don't, I don't remember it being too frustrating. I was super keen and I was really disciplined about getting involved. So I was In the beginning, trying to meet as many brokers as possible, I wanted to get the biggest possible snapshot of the markets I was looking at and underwrite as many deals as possible. I was tracking how much I was underwriting. Every month I would set targets. Like I'd say this month I want to underwrite 25 deals. And just the personality that I have, I would always want to beat that target. So I'd set out and say I'm going to do 25 and I end up underwriting 30 deals. And so I would... I was just tracking how much I could underwrite and trying to look at as many deals as possible. I knew I had a lot to learn. So in the beginning I was probably underwriting everything possible, but as I learned and got a bit more educated about what kind of deals might work, which kind of deals I personally liked as an investment, I started to hone in that criteria. Um, So I think it was really beneficial to be that broad in the beginning, but I started to get a little bit more focused over time. Yeah like you said it i think it was about 8 months and then eventually we found our first deal
0: that's awesome i do want to dive into that deal but i would love to kind of have you share maybe some of the kpis for maybe someone who is in a position where they're just now starting to look for deals do you have like a, a ballpark of how many deals you underwrote in order to get one loi submitted in order to even get one that was accepted and so forth uh
1: i was i was working towards the rule that you need to look at 100 deals to win one mm-hmm. So I think it, for me in the end it was about 86 deals. Nice. Um so maybe Pretty I was good. a bit yeah it came a little <laughs> uh I was tracking more stats than just that. So I was it's difficult. It's not always easy. Like I would track how many LOIs am I submitting. But in the beginning you're looking at so many deals, most of them don't work, so there's probably no point in submitting an LOI when I got much more focused at the end, like even nowadays, I really only dig into a deal when I think it's got a good chance of making sense. So I'm probably submitting a lot more LOIs now as a percentage than I was in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, but I do think when you're starting out, it's very important to underwrite as much as you can, as you get a little bit more knowledge and experience, it's really important to, travel and tour the properties and meet the brokers face to face as you get a bit more experience with that it's really important to submit offers because if you don't submit offers the brokers will never take you seriously so it it did feel like there were different steps firstly just underwrite deals and learn how to underwrite secondly tour properties and meet the brokers and build relationships with them and thirdly make offers because that's how you get taken seriously by those brokers
0: no, I love I love that you broke that down because I was gonna ask about broker relationships and that's how that's how we've been able to stand out is meeting them in person because at first we would just get the cold shoulder. They would not even remember our name um, and now Kenny's getting calls back uh, without him having to reach out. So it really is, it just a slow burn with the, with the brokers and it's all about relationship building.
1: And I I even remember a couple of times where I spoke to a broker on the phone and they were really friendly and <laughs> it felt like they were trained to make me think that they knew who I was but I, I felt like they're just professional at being friendly on the phone and making out as though they remember who you are. But if you don't meet them face to face, it's just, it's just the way it works. They yeah. will
0: not remember. Yeah. They, they get a ton of calls too. So it's not even like really their fault. It's hard for them to remember yeah. if they don't have a face with, with the name, um, but you did, you know, all your hard work eventually paid off. I know you found a Sarasota, Florida deal. That was 148 units. I'd love to know, uh, What were the in and outs of that deal? What were some ups and downs in terms of maybe some hardships to close or anything like that?
1: So that was 148 units. It was an A-class deal. It was built in 2016. um, But the interiors were pretty poor. There was, even though it was a relatively new asset, there was a lot of scope to be able to renovate the kitchens in particular um, and be able to push rents to $300. So what was the question? What were the- Yeah, the-
0: some, some like ups and downs of that deal, maybe some challenges that you had to push through in order to close. Um,
1: you know, the, it went pretty smoothly compared to what I've seen in other deals. Um, the due diligence was pretty clean. It was a, mm-hmm. a newer asset. So there weren't structural issues. There was no deferred maintenance. The biggest challenge for us was a unique aspect of that deal is that it had a Lura on it, land use restriction agreement. So when the builder built the building they I guess they asked for some tax credits and in return for the tax credits. um, The county put a restriction on 25% of the units they wanted 25% of the units to be affordable units. What we didn't realize when once when we got the the asset under LOI is that the county had to approve the transfer of ownership because of that Laura. And it turns out the county's never in a hurry to do anything. Um, and they only made these decisions about transferring ownership at their board meeting, which was once a month and maybe not even every month. So we actually got that deal under LOI in November. We were due to close it. I don't know if it was January or February, but we ended up only closing in March because everything was in order, ready to go. But the county, we were waiting on the county to uh, give their final approval. So that was the most challenging part of that one. Um, A little bit of uncertainty about how that process works.
0: Yeah, I feel like there's always something. Something It's never going to be like a a home run. There
1: is always something. Uh, And what we learned in retrospect as well is that the company who we bought this deal from, they had to go through the exact same process when they bought the deal. So they knew that this was coming. They just didn't say anything about it in the beginning. And apparently they took six months to close. Mm -hmm. So us closing that deal in four months wasn't a bad.
0: bad That's awesome. I appreciate you sharing that. And you mentioned that was a class A. I believe that's kind of like what your your criteria is. And um, of most investors, I think the traditional investment criteria is B to C class. And you did touch on some reasons you prefer class A, but I would love to know how are you making class A work right now, Um, particularly in this investment market and I know you you kind of have like a certain it's not like the luxury AA plus plus, but can you just kind of expand on on your mindset about class A and maybe why that's less risk and how you're mitigating risk with those investments?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It all does come down to risk and return. You know, everyone talks about risk and return and we're trying to generate risk-adjusted returns. Generally, I just think A-class deals have lower risk. They probably generate lower return. But really what we wanna measure is the risk adjusted return we can get in one of these types of assets versus the risk adjusted return in another type of asset. We like A-class deals for a number of reasons. I mentioned they're newer built, the systems, the structure is generally better. There's less deferred maintenance. So that's that's one big plus. Another is that they're often built in areas in, in better parts of the market. Newer parts of the city or better parts of the market, so they attract a better demographic so we'd expect to get less bad debt less problems with crime again that that makes it lower risk investment. Um, What we what we've seen in the market in the last two or three years as cap rates have compressed is that cap rates are compressing across the board and probably more so on some of these C class deals so if cap rates are basically going to be the same between an a class and a c class deal i'd much rather buy the a class deal so for all of those reasons we've been focusing our energy on a class and like you said it's a class sometimes gets a bad rap because we think that if there's a downturn everyone's going to move out of these a class buildings and go into b class but really there's a minus there's a there's triple a luxury Some of these AAA type products look like a resort. They look like the highest end hotel that you've ever seen. And that's not what we're buying. We're still value add investors. So we're still looking to add value to force appreciation. It just so happens that we're trying to do it in newer buildings, stuff that's built in the 2000s or the 2010s. So I like to say we we focus more on the A minus end of the scale. Mm -hmm. So yes, there are newer buildings, There are going to be less structural issues. There are going to be a better demographic, but there's still scope to add value. Um, And we do that through light renovations could be upgrading the kitchens, upgrading a tech package um, could be through other means, but we always want to show that we can add value and force appreciation. Yeah. Generate Those risk adjusted returns.
0: I'm curious, how does demand for the, for that kind of property differ from like class B or class C?
1: Uh, It does differ. I mean, I think the the quickest way of answering that is that we end up competing with a different type of buyer. So things have kind of changed as more and more capital came into the industry. Mm. But if we go back two or three years ago, we were looking at properties that most syndicators probably wouldn't have considered before because we were in this price range of, say, $30 million, $40 million where a lot of syndicators don't tend to compete or didn't tend to compete. So we tended to compete with institutions, small institutions or family offices rather than syndicators. In the beginning, I felt like we had a real niche. We were above the area where most syndicators wanted to play, but we were below the area where most institutions wanted to play. So I felt like there weren't that many competitors, which was great. What we found as more and more capital came into the industry is that syndicators started looking at bigger and bigger deals, and the institutions started looking at smaller and smaller deals. So in the end, it was still a very crowded space. Yeah. Um, probably because a lot of people saw opportunity there. They they also saw cap rates compressing across the board, and so more and more people were attracted to that type of asset.
0: Yeah. No, absolutely. And and of course, you know, with a Class A property, you're gonna it's gonna come with a higher price tag. I, I would really love to dive into briefly. How are you tackling the the raising of equity on these properties? And I believe you also leverage an equity broker. So if you can touch on that as well, that'd be awesome.
1: So we knew from the very beginning, um, we were targeting more expensive assets. We knew that we had to come up with a solution to raise the equity. So we were very intentional from the very beginning about engaging an equity broker and considering PREF equity, mezzanine debt, other forms of institutional equity. So that was a decision we made very early on before we ever found our first asset because we knew that that first asset required $11 million of equity to close. We knew that we, we would struggle raising $11 million right off the bat. So we engaged a, an equity broker. We talked to a number of equity brokers, but there was one that we particularly liked and got along well with. And as we were looking at deals and underwriting new deals, we would engage the broker and he would engage different equity partners. So we started having these discussions with institutional partners very early on. And that experience I think was, was essential because not only did we learn the lingo and the way that these other companies look at deals, but we started to build relationships. Um, And that came in really handy when we found that first deal, um, and then we we ended up partnering with an institutional equity provider who provided close to $7 million for that deal. So seven out of the 11 million.
0: Yeah. And, and um, for anyone that might not know, can you explain the difference between like a mortgage broker and uh, an equity uh, broker?
1: So these guys uh, have relationships with funds, family offices, anyone who's managing a lot of money who wants to invest in this space. So... A lot of us know mortgage brokers. If you wanna get a mortgage on your house, you know they'll, they'll negotiate a, a great debt deal for you. These guys do the same function, do the same type of thing, but they focus on the equity side. So when we're buying one of these assets, we'll get a loan from Freddie or Fannie or a bridge loan, but we also need to raise equity. And now we have a choice. We can either raise from individuals, doctors, engineers, high net worth individuals, or we can go to the broker and, and try and find institutions and funds and family offices um, who can also invest in our projects.
0: Yeah, and a big a big factor that's been you know, kind of trending lately that, that will impact for sure debt is uh, the interest rates and high high higher interest rates. And you know you're a very smart guy, so I would love to know what's your perspective on that and how are you adjusting your underwriting and kind of being more conservative to potentially mitigate the impacts of future higher higher interest rates in the future.
1: I so I don't know if I agree with your assessment, but I feel like I know enough to know that I know nothing about what's going to happen with interest rates. So what I try and do is rely on as much public information out there as possible. So we rely on one data source is Chatham Financial, for instance, and Chatham Financial will publish forward interest rates for the next three, four or five years. Um, and so you can see that the Fed fund rate, I, I can't remember what it is right now, 75 cents or something, 75 basis points. If you look at the Chatham forward curve, they're projecting that number to grow to 1.5 percent, two percent, two and a half percent over the next few years. Now that is based on what everyone in the capital markets are generally predicting for interest rates to do. I don't know what they're gonna do, but rather than do nothing. I'd rather take the view of the market, which at the moment is that interest rates are gonna to continue to increase. And we build that into our underwriting. So if we're underwriting a deal with variable variable rate debt, we're gonna make sure that in year one, we're using interest rates that might be there today or for the next 12 months. And then we look at that forward curve. And if, if the market's saying that, well, in year two, interest rates are gonna be 2% higher, we wanna allow for that. Um, in the underwriting for next year. Yeah, That's the most basic way that we start to incorporate it. There are other subtleties that need to be thought about as well. For instance, refi, refinance. A lot of people are underwriting deals with bridge debt today and planning to refinance in two years' time or three years' time. And when you refinance, there are a few variables. Again, very uncertain. Like We don't know what they're going to be in two or three years' time, but the interest rate is one of them. And the other one is debt service coverage ratio which is how much income your property is generating relative to the debt service if interest rates continue to go up i expect a lot of the dscr the debt service coverage ratios to drop and what that would mean on refi is that the lenders are going to be giving less proceeds on those on those loans because you're not going to have enough income to cover the debt service so we try and Firstly, rely on publicly available information about what's going to happen because we don't know. And then secondly, think about all the different steps in the business plan and how they might be affected by those interest rates.
0: Yeah, no, it's really interesting. And, and I've heard you kind of touch on this uh, fascinating point of being more aggressive in some parts of, of the business plan and, and being more conservative in the others. And in particular, I believe you were comparing rent uh, rent increases to like the debt. So can you kind of explain on how you're balancing how aggressive you can be and maybe, um, when it comes to like rent versus debt.
1: Yeah, I guess, you know, underwriting is part science part. art, And so it's, you've, you've got to kind of make judgments along the way. Something I've found is that's worked for us is that the more we've bought in a market, which is central Florida for us, the more we get to know the market and the more we get a, a real feel for rents and vacancy and other trends in the market. As I built up that kind of knowledge at a local level, I gained more confidence to be able to make calls in the underwriting to say, you know what, I think I can push rents another $50. Or I think rent growth is going to be 4% next year, not 3%. So I I guess that's the art in -hmm. the underwriting. So it was based on some sort of local knowledge and maybe a gut feel. I think it's really important because in today's market, it's so competitive. You need any edge you can to win a deal. And that's, that's the bit that we found to be successful for us. That where we felt like we had that knowledge and could take a punt and say that we think we can push rents a little bit further, that allowed us to win certain deals. On the interest rate side, like I said, I don't, no one knows what's gonna happen. Yeah. Right now we're relying on this market view and I feel like we're probably losing deals because of it. I'm sure there are other people out there who are not taking such a conservative approach and they're probably winning deals. And, you know, in two or three years time, when we look back, they could be right and I could be wrong. Um, but I do think that when you're underwriting a deal, you need to find an area of the underwriting where you can make some more aggressive assumptions, I guess.
0: Yeah.
1: Based on your beliefs, based on, you know, you've got to justify those aggressive assumptions as best you can.
0: Yeah, like educated, educated risks. Yeah,
1: educated risks. I don't know if we should use the word, <laughs> question, but educated risks, exactly.
0: No, absolutely. And, and I agree with you. I think um, it's really important to kind of focus on on one market. And I've heard you say that where you prefer to be really focused, honed in on one market instead of spread out among various markets. Uh, I don't know if you want to touch on the importance of kind of doing that, but.
1: I would love to be more broad than that. It's just a function of time available. So at the moment, we're very much focused on Florida. And we're starting to look at Texas as well yes. in the future when we, when we own a, a really big successful company, hopefully we can, we've got more staff and we can focus on more markets. I just think for my bandwidth, I feel a lot more productive going deep in one or two markets rather than being spread really thinly and not knowing in detail, any of those markets. Yeah. I think for me it's much better to, to go deep and focused.
0: Yeah. And what we found is it's easier to meet the brokers in those markets too, if you have one. So you get to know everyone, you become more more popular in that market and just win more deals.
1: Absolutely. No, you get to know. And you know, the, they talk about the law of the first deal. Mm-hmm. It's true that once you start winning deals, the local brokers will start coming to you and you're known in that market. So that makes it easier as well to stay local.
0: Absolutely. And you shared a lot of awesome knowledge today. I appreciate it. It's It's time for our speed round. Are you ready?
1: Absolutely. That's good.
0: Awesome. All right. First up, what's your biggest failure in real estate and what did you take away from that experience?
1: Uh, Biggest failure is probably, I, I feel like I started too late. I should have started doing this when I was your age. Uh, You know, they, everyone, everyone says this, the best time to buy real estate was 20 years ago. The next best time is now. So what I've taken away from that is that I'm just really intentional about growing my portfolio now. That's awesome. That's awesome.
0: And so I would love to know what what is your long-term vision for your business? You mentioned it earlier, but can you expand on what you're aiming to accomplish moving forward?
1: I want to build an institutional quality company. I come from the financial services industry where I'm used to dealing with companies like Merrill Lynch and Goldman Sachs and all these brand names that are professionally run companies. I'm now in this syndication space where I see grassroots people creating businesses. I think there's an opportunity to be a syndicator, but to create a really professional, professionally run organization that could be, you know, put on a pedestal like a Merrill Lynch or a Goldman Sachs. That's what I want to build.
0: Yeah, like a corporation. That's awesome. That's awesome. I love that. Uh, I would love to know what is your why and, and, I guess, mission that motivates you to even pursue real estate.
1: My why has got to be time freedom. I like I touched on before I was brought up just to work hard, study, get a job. And I really came to the realization that I'm trading time for money. So now my why is it's all about time freedom. I've got three young kids. I want to be an active parent, you know, watch them growing up and I want to have enough time and flexibility to do all of that. So that's really what drives me.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Family is also important to me I don't have kids yet, but my mom and my brother, so family oriented. I love that. Um, I know that mindset is a big thing for you. You've touched on the importance of mindset and this is just a bonus question, honestly. What is the one book that you would say has helped you the most with your mindset?
1: There has got to be so much. Um, I've, I've tried to read everything in the space, like any real estate type book, a lot of stuff on mindset. I, I like a lot of Tony Robbins stuff. Um, I think he's got some great content. I don't always like, um, you know, his style or the way mm-hmm. it's, but I think the content that he puts out is amazing. Um, that's probably been the biggest help to me. There's, awesome. There are a number of books out there that he's written.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And like I said, you shared a ton of wisdom and knowledge today, but if there was one piece of advice you'd want our audience to walk away with from the episode, what would that be?
1: Uh You know, you just mentioned mindset, and I I really think a positive mindset has helped me enormously. This just being able to open up my mind and know that I can achieve anything. I think in the beginning, there were a lot of self-doubts, and like I I mentioned, I felt like I had a lot to learn. I think the biggest thing is anyone can do this. As long as you've got dedication, you're willing to learn, willing to listen, willing to network and meet other people, I'd say don't let... a a negative mindset hold you back because anyone can do this
0: yeah Uh, thank you so much it was a pleasure chatting with you if anyone in our audience wants to learn more about you your company or just follow you on your journey where can they go to do that
1: best place is probably our website it's equityyieldgroup.com you can reach out contact us via the website um, jump on a call and that's probably the best way
0: Awesome. Well, thanks again for being here, Warren. And thanks everyone for tuning into the Real Estate Monopoly show with the Donis Brothers. If you want to access our Five Mistakes New Investors Make playbook, you can go to www.donisinvestmentgroup.com backslash playbook to download that for free. Hope you guys have a great rest of your day. Let's get out there and take action.